Hello, hello, and welcome to the Kinks and Beatles Daily Deep Dive. I am your host, Tony Fry, and this is episode 221, where we will be discussing the song The Fool on the Hill by the Beatles. If you're joining us live, um, I will be checking the chat in Facebook Live periodically throughout the um, recording, so if I say something that um, strikes a nerve with you or is completely wrong, go ahead and jump in and, and say hello so I know that you're you're watching and uh, and listening. And if you're listening to this after the fact or watching one of the archived videos, make sure you follow Hero Habit on Facebook where you can get the updates on what time we'll be going live with all these events because I think this is how we're going to do it from now on. This has been kind of fun for me and uh, I think it's going to be cool for the podcast in the future. So make sure you follow and and do all that kind of stuff. And um, this is our third live recording session. And so if you missed any of the other ones... They um, are archived on our Facebook page as well as on our YouTube channel. So either one of those preferred places for you to watch videos uh, is great. And then, of course, it'll be on the podcast feed later. Enough housekeeping, though. Um, let's just get on with the show. Let's talk about Fool on the Hill. Okay, This song was released as song two on the Magical Mystery Tour album on November 27th, 1967 in the United States. And it was issued as the fourth song... Um, which was the opening of Side 3, on the double EP soundtrack in the UK on December 8, 1967. It's the second song heard in the film, so the LP actually matches in that respect, um, but it gets some of the other songs wrong as far as the movie order. The EP is in no way connected to the film order, um, other than Magical Mystery Tour, the song appears number one on both. So, that's... I don't know why they did it like that, Um trying to think i'm pretty sure the other soundtrack albums hard days night help i'm pretty sure those are in order of appearance but i even that i'm not positive i should have looked at that before i started this um the first session for this song was september 6 1967 when paul did a solo demo on piano for the rest of the band you can hear that on anthology 2 um they also worked on i'm the walrus and blue jay way that evening but that was it. It was just the demo. There was nothing else beyond that. And then on September 25th, so a couple weeks later, the band did do a proper recording with Paul on piano and recorder, John and George on harmonica, and Ringo on drums. Uh, and they did a few takes of that. The next night, they added a ton of overdubs. And uh, so many overdubs that the song, it was essentially a remake from the previous night because they had wiped out some tracks, re-recorded things, added new instrumentation, um, and they added a ton of time onto the song. At this point, at the end of this session, the song clocks in at 4 minutes and 25 seconds, which is a minute and a half longer than the version we all know from Magical Mystery Tour album. Um, so it's morphed into something completely different at this point. Uh, they added a piano track, two acoustic guitars, more drums, bass, and a new lead vocal, among other things. And this session was completely dedicated to Fool on the Hill and lasted over nine hours. Um, they didn't leave this session till 4.15 in the morning. So that's a long session devoted to one song, but that is going to be the bulk of the recording for this whole, this whole track. Um, Paul recorded another vocal on September 27th, which was the same night that the strings and choir were added to Iron the Walrus. And I only mention that I think it's cool when you hear about all the things that are going on at the same time, right? You've got them working for several hours on this 
massive recording that is I Am the Walrus with like 16 uh, uh, piece choir and a, and a string ensemble and all that. And then right after they're done with that, instead of where most bands probably would have just said, all right, that sounds good. Let's call it a night. They go and like, well, let's throw in some more vocals and stuff on a song that we worked on yesterday. Uh, and then that's pretty much it for a while. That's September 27th. Fast forward to October 20th, and it's time to add some flutes to the tune. Uh, and just like we talked about in the Magical Mystery Tour episode, which was a couple days ago, outside musicians were brought in, um, which was not uncommon. They were doing that all the time. But they were paid a fortune because just like that session, this one went into overtime um, by three and a half hours. So these guys are getting double pay at this point, uh, which is good for them. I mean, I know as a musician... I am both uh, thrilled and irritated when you have these situations in the recording studio or a live rehearsal for a show or something. Um, yeah, the money's good, but if you're going three and a half hours of overtime, it's a good shot you've been sitting around doing nothing for a lot of that time. And that's exactly what happened here because part of the problem was that Paul was playing all the parts on piano and then George Martin is sitting there next to him scribbling it down to hand to the musicians and a more cash-conscious group of musicians would have written all that out prior to calling in the session guys right I, I i doubt there are any other bands on the planet that before during or after the beatles um are writing the the orchestral arrangements on the spot while the guys are sitting there waiting to play it and while it's good that they had that fluidity like i mentioned in uh magical mystery tour you know the story goes that one of those musicians actually chimed in and was like why don't we just play this and wrote it out for him and, and it ended up being part of the track. But um, that fluidity comes with a, a price and they're paying double time now for these, I believe it was four flautists um, to do their overdubs on this night. But at this point, uh, it's done. You know, it, it's it's uh, it's pretty much as as we know it, although it's still four and a half minutes long. So on October 25th, they did the mono mix of the song, and this is where they edited it down to three minutes, um, which was just its final duration. On Anthology 2 album, Take 4 is included on that album, which is 3 minutes and 44 seconds, uh, which is around 40 seconds shorter than the full length. So even though they included this take that has all this extra material, um, Somewhere floating in the EMI archives, there is a full version of this song that um, I've never heard. I checked YouTube. Usually YouTube's a good place to find bootlegs, and uh, I couldn't find couldn't find it there. They all have take four from the anthology, but I believe what you're looking for is take six. Um it's either take six or take seven. I forget how the, there's some discrepancies on how they um, name the tracks on this one, and or they name the takes rather. And there's some discrepancy. It's just hard to figure out whether it's take six or take seven. I'm not a hundred percent sure. But if you happen to have a bootleg with it on it, um, I would love to to hear it. So send it my way. Um, and that take four doesn't it's on anthology doesn't include all the overdubs. So maybe if there's an expansive magical mystery tour set um, in the future, like they have done with Pepper, the White Album, and Abbey Road, and Let It Be, um, maybe we'll get that then. But honestly, I imagine it'll be disappointing. 
because there's not a whole lot going on in this song and cutting it down to three minutes was most definitely the right decision but i still want to hear it just as a curious beatles fan and i want to um uh have more of the magical mystery tour sessions in general and i think if it were me doing all of the remastered remixes and all that because of the way these albums are intertwined i might have considered doing a massive box that was just 1967 that included the sergeant pepper stuff and the magical mystery tour stuff and i get why they did it pepper is an iconic album it's their most important album um and it was the first one that they started doing these remixes of but it would have been cool to have just a 1967 set because you've already got Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane on the Sgt. Pepper set because they were technically the first songs written for that session. Then you've got um, Only a Northern Song, which isn't released until the Yellow Submarine soundtrack. So what, where, you know, that's got to be included in there. And then, like I mentioned before, Magical Mystery Tour, that recording session starts like four days after the last Pepper session. So they're so intertwined. Um, it would have been cool to have a, a complete 67 set. But I digress. We are going well beyond the topic of Fool on the Hill at this point. Um, John Lennon once said of the song, Now that's Paul. Another good lyric shows he's capable of writing complete songs, which is a backhanded, backhanded compliment if I've ever heard one. I mean, he can't just say, he says another good lyric, so that's something, right? He's implying that there have been some before. Um, but that shows he's capable of writing complete songs. That's that's a bit of a stretch from the guy who came in with, uh, you know, Happiness is a Warm Gun, which is three incomplete songs. Not that I'm dissing it. I mean, that's one of my favorite songs, but you know what I'm trying to say. Um, I remember John also saying, I don't remember where I read this, um, that it was a meaningless song and was simply a bunch of good lines strung together. But I couldn't find a source for that quote, so it's possible I'm remembering it incorrectly or for the wrong song. But even in the Playboy interview from 1980, which was right before John died, um, and when he was the least um, bitter and cranky towards his Beatles past, he praised the song then as well. So take with all that what you will. Um, But, you know... John has credited to it. So you'll remember in the Magical Mystery Tour episode, I spoke of the airiness of the entire album. And this track really highlights it, right? And if you listen to it, there's a lot of of space in this track. And even though these songs were recorded immediately after the Pepper tracks, which are super produced and super orchestrated, uh, you can already hear the band morphing into the sound they'd adopt for the White Album. So Fool on the Hill blends the psychedelia of Pepper with the stripped down aspect of the white album and so there's no there's no vocal harmonies or backing vocals the arrangement's pretty sparse and the sound of the recording is pretty raw right it this is not a warm recording and in fact most of the tracks on the none of the tracks i think on the magical mystery tour ep but even if you include that uh, american the b-side with all the singles none of them are particularly warm maybe all you need is love but none of them are particularly warm. There's a certain, I don't know how to describe it. The, the way I feel it is that th- there's, 
like they're recording in a, a giant room, right? They're all in this tight little circle, but they're recording in this giant room, this big empty room, and the mics are picking up all that room, right? And that's really the sound of a lot of the tracks here. And then when you get to the wide album, they kind of continue that sound where it's very stripped back. There's not a lot of effects. It's, it's a more raw sound a more easy to replicate live sound. Um, but they've also then, by the time they get to the White Home, they've stripped away the psychedelia, right? There's not as many like meandering um, jam codas like on Magical Mystery Tour and flying and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and it's more of a stripped back rock and roll. So this is really a transitional album. Literally days after making this psychedelic masterpiece. Um, and this song, I think, Fool on the Hill, kind of foreshadows the next album more than any other song on, on, on Magical Mystery Tour. The chords on the song are really well done. And Paul's vocal, I'm just going to, real quick, Paul's vocal is outstanding. This is a great vocal from Paul. Um, the song is written in the key of D major and opens on a D6 chord. So that's, remember, I think I mentioned before, when you have a chord, the, when I say D major, 1, 3, and 5 are implied. Right, I know exactly what those are. Any number that comes after that, I'm adding another scale degree. So D6 is D, F sharp, A, and B. We're adding that sixth note of the scale. Um, and then he slides up to an E minor 7 slash D. All right, this is just a fancy or quick, easy way of notating a, um, a seventh chord and third inversion, which means that they put that top note, that seventh, they put it on the bottom. Um, and in an E minor chord, the seventh is a D. So by putting it as the lowest note, instead of the top, we've got this kind of drone underneath the song, or you'll hear people call it a pedal tone, right? He's, he's changing chords in the right hand, but the, the left hand's just playing the D the whole time. Um, there aren't any borrowed chords in the first part of the verse. It's basically all ones, twos, fives, and sixes. Um, but what he does is he adds a lot of sevenths to the chords. And so this expands the harmony a little bit, and it opens up the song. This adds to the airiness. Because when you add the sevenths, um, it gives the feel that you've got like a pull to a resolution that never comes. So in this one, we've got a 2-7, not uncommon. Uh, we have a 3-7. We have a 5-7. That's your dominant chord. That's in most songs. Uh, and we have a 6-7. So he's adding, except for the root, the tonic, the D major chord, he's adding sevenths all over the place. And that really adds to the vibe of this whole track. Um, the chorus, though, makes a dramatic shift to D minor. And he uses that dominant chord to shift, right? He ends the verse on A7. So right before, he, while the fool on the hill, that leading up to fool He's on an A7 chord, and that's the dominant in both D minor and D major. So at that point, he could go anywhere. He could go to D major, or he could shift to D minor. Um, coming out of the verse, though, he doesn't make any kind of, or coming out of the chorus, rather, he doesn't make any kind of dominant shift like that. He just goes to D major. He ends, he ends the chorus on D minor, and then just goes up to major, which is kind of the opposite. A lot of times in pop songs, you'll hear... A major chord go down to minor it's very 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 popular um, you do it on the four chord right you do uh, 
well, I don't need to get into that. I, I didn't. I didn't even bring out my guitar for this one because I wasn't planning on going this deep into the harmony. But going major to minor is very common. Minor to major, I mean, it's not rare, but it's uh, the less common of the two. And he just goes for it, um, which is cool. The main harmonic hook of the chorus, though, is his use of the sharp five. Okay, so he hits a D minor chord, and then he slides up uh, the fifth up a half step. So you go dun 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 da dun dun. Right, that's just the fifth sliding up a half step, and this functions similarly to the drone note he had in the verse, except now he's droning two notes. He's droning, instead of just the bottom note, he's doing the bottom note and the middle note are staying the same, and it's that top note that's shifting all by itself. Um, and this really works really well, and it adds a dark color to the chorus, as if the dark, you know, switching to minor wasn't dark enough. Adding that augmented fifth makes it even a little bit more spooky and all that, and, it, and it's uh, really grabs your ear. But I think it's also why this song seems to drag in the extended edits. If you spend too much time on that D, uh, the ear gets bored, right? In fact, by my count, a D appears as part of the chord in 88% of the measures of this song. That's a lot, right? That's a long time to have that one note digging in your head. And at four and a half minutes, which, you know, with that original cut I was saying was four and a half minutes, at four and a half minutes, I think that is just going to be plodding along and plodding along, especially at this tempo. And um, there's really not that much you can do with it. There's no bridge or anything. So it it's a lot. I think if you're going to have this song go four and a half minutes, you got to write a C-section to really break us out of that tonality a little bit um that's about all i've got for this track it's not my favorite track on this album and it's certainly not my favorite by the band this is probably when i pop in magical mystery tour which i do it's a pretty i revisit that one a lot this is probably the one i skip the most often um but they obviously thought it was good good enough because it made the movie and it made their greatest hits um album the blue album uh in 1973 um, so, I mean, they liked it and, uh, and they basically did it in two nights, which is pretty incredible. I'm going to swing by the comments. If you're in the live chat now, we've got Roland here. According to Paul's latest books, the lyrics, he admits the song is about the Maharishi, but not in a bad way. He compares the Maharishi to the truth telling fool in King Lear. I have read that he's, he's made that Maharishi claim before. Um, and he actually says that in those days, a lot of people called him a fool. Um, he attributed it to a squeaky voice. And if you've ever heard the Maharishi talk, it is a voice that you wouldn't expect to come out of that face. But um, I have heard that before. There is a bootleg called Magical Mystery Demos. I have it somewhere and we'll dig it up. Well, thank you very much. Um, I hope it has the full four and a half minute cut of this song. So... That's it for me. If you have any comments about this uh, song, go ahead and send them to me at um, kinksandbeats at herohabit.com or you can call me and leave a voicemail uh, 925-494-1739. And of course, you can find me on all the social medias where I have a Facebook group. 
there's a Twitter page, there's a subreddit, there's TikTok, there's the YouTube channel where all these will be archived. And of course, if you follow us on Facebook at Hero Habit, um, you'll get updates on when the recording sessions will take place. Thank you for everyone that watched live. Thank you for Roland for uh, chiming in on the chat. You are our first live chatter since we've changed the format here. And I hope um, you will all come back and listen to our next episode. Take care. Have a great day. Stay safe.